Welcome back to the Fourth Way Podcast. In this episode, I was able to talk with Josh of Our Foundation's podcast. Now, I had actually only listened to one episode of his before reaching out to him, but the episode was so good uh, and something uh, that we we talk about and kind of re- relates to our podcast so much, I, I had to talk to him about it. So you'll get to hear a little bit about that today. But what I want to do before you get to listen to it um, is I, I want to, like I do with a lot of the other interviews, I want to pull out one of the the ideas that I think resonated the most with me uh, if I were going to summarize the the big takeaway for me from this episode. So we do talk a lot about a lot of different things, uh, you know, anarchism, capitalism, finances, um, the church, ethics, like lots of different things. But the thing that kept coming back for me was when Joshua did such a good job reminding us that um, regardless of all of these philosophical positions or economic positions or political positions or non-positions, um, really for the Christian, everything boils down to the kingdom of God. And we can try to describe that with our isms, but the focus is the kingdom of God, not to be an anarchist or a republican or a capitalist or a communist but to be faithful to the kingdom of God. And I think sometimes when, when I latch on to different ideologies, or I, I feel like those ideologies describe me well and my position well, and how somebody should live out the kingdom well, there's this kind of devious thing that happens in which, in my heart, that ism, even though it says that it's trying to pursue the kingdom and bring the kingdom, ends up replacing it and being the focus. And so much of Christian anarchist thought is not about implementing systems, but rather about kind of tearing down those borders and those boundaries. Um, And it's so much not about processes, but about flexibility and about relationship. If I focus on a political viewpoint then I want everybody to be within that political viewpoint. But if I am a Christian anarchist, if, I'm, if I am focused on the kingdom of God, then I think it's C.S. Lewis who, who basically said, you know, you never have met a mere mortal because everybody in this world is, is under the jurisdiction of the kingdom of God and God loves all men, uh, all humanity. And so the way that we are going to express ourselves, regardless of our, our viewpoints, the way that we're going to express ourselves um, to meet people where they're at, just like God met Rahab where she was at in a pagan culture, but he met her where she was at. And he meets Rahab differently than he meets Matthew, the tax collector. So when we focus on the kingdom of God rather than implementing some ideology that we want everybody to latch on to, these this, these boundaries, these boxes. It helps us to to hold loosely our isms and our ideologies and to hold our palms out and open, just as our Savior did. And that's really what Christian anarchism, as it seeks to um, to live out the kingdom, that's really what it boils down to. It's not about forced action. It's not about boxes but it's about being the hands and feet, about living out the kingdom uh, freely. 
and convincing others to do the same, not through legislation and smashing them over the head and bearing the sword against them, but through the compelling testimony and influence of the way that we live out our lives. If you've read the book When Helping Hurts, or if you have been around the Christian scene a long time, you've probably heard this quote by the Emperor Julian, who was uh, he was bemoaning this idea that Christianity was progressing, and that um, you know his pagan ideas and religion was receding in the culture. And listen to what Julian attributed this to. He said that atheism, or the Christian faith, has been specially advanced through the loving service rendered to strangers and through their care for the burial of the dead. It is a scandal that there is not a single Jew who is a beggar and that the godless Galileans care not only for their own poor, but for ours as well, while those who belong to us look in vain for the help that we should render them. Now that's the kingdom of God. Not an ism, but an is. A true, living, visible, tangible representation, manifestation of love. So as you listen to this episode, I do want to encourage you to go listen to some of Joshua's other episodes. Um, But what I want you to focus on in this episode is the kingdom of God. Always be thinking the kingdom of God. Sure, you're going to learn some things about the Christian anarchist position. We're going to talk about a bunch of isms. But behind all that, what needs to be is the kingdom of God. And hopefully, that's also something that is true of all of the episodes that that I have done. Uh, Hopefully behind all of that, in all that, through all that, there is this idea of the kingdom of God. So here it is, our interview with Joshua from Our Foundations. So yeah, I I just started... um, and and by the way, there might be some interruptions. My kids are kind of kind of crazy tonight, so it's um it's not a, a normal bedtime night. So there might be some interruptions. Um, That's just all right. expect that. <laughs> you have kids though, right? Too. Yeah, we've got three kids and a fourth three. on the way. Okay, yeah, I'm at four. So two boys, two girls, seven to one. Oh, you might be able to hear one right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's a uh, oh man, it's um it's rough. Yeah, but it's good. It's just definitely a challenge. Usually by nine, like this is this is a safe time, um, but every once in a while it's not. Yeah. Um, anyway, um, I just I don't even remember where I found your your podcast, who I was listening to, where it was recommended. Um, but you know, I I listened to the most recent one that came out, and it it uh, just really struck a chord with me because, um, it, it hit on something that, that I like to talk about a lot that, that seems to be a current, um, uh, a theme that comes up all the time. And, uh, I just wanted to kind of, I like talking to different people because they have different experiences and insight. And uh, also as I was going through your podcast more, I realized, I think of, of all of the podcasts that I've listened to, I think you might be the most similar to me, not, not necessarily in regard to content, but the way that like, I'm very structured, like, you know, I do seasons and they logically progress, you know, I make an argument and then I get to rebuttals and, and it seems like you kind of, you kind of have a very similar structure. So, um, I don't know if you're my doppelganger or what, but, uh, (laughs) but I thought you'd be interesting to talk to. 
Yeah, uh, yeah. Thank you. I've actually listened to probably about a dozen episodes of your show now. Okay. So I did the first, I think maybe the first two, did the intro, did the one on the early church. I did one on, or two on Romans 13 and did a few of the random rebuttals and I think one you hadn't released yet even. So I've, I've got gotten a taste of all that and I agree, your line of thinking and how you approach the debates and the issues does seem to be pretty in line with how I approach things. So. That's yeah. Cool. And I know I've listened to, so you get, you get into some areas that I'm not super familiar with. Like um, I was listening to some on like conspiracies cause I'm, I'm planning on a season in the future on um, uh, like propaganda and truth because truth is something that's, that's comes up all the time in regard to nonviolence, morality and that stuff. Um, so I listened to one of yours on propaganda and um I, it's one of those things that I'm not there yet because it's it's just very um, it, it's just kind of a different stream like I think I'm gonna jump into that stream um, and I don't know where that'll take me but I'm just I, I'm not there yet but it was it was interesting um, and I, I've read my friend had me read uh, the creature from Jekyll Island have you Ooh. read that yes yes okay yeah so what, what you were saying sounded quite a bit like like that. Okay. Yeah. If you go back, I actually did a series really early on, on conspiracies and corruption. And that one you might be interested in. I did one episode on government, one on education, and one on like uh, the monetary system or economics, and kind of how there's corruption and conspiracies through the decades and all those fields. And it gives, it, I, I approached it from a very, I guess, ground level, documented approach. So yeah. pretty much everything is quotes from people that were in office or that were ex-military or that were involved and, you know, government investigations, that kind of stuff. So I tried to avoid yeah. all the theoretical conspiracies. But... Right. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what's that's what's so helpful. I think you have to go for the uh, reductionist approach where it's just I mean, y- you go with um, with with the knowns because um, like nobody wants to feel like a conspiracy theorist. I don't. But the more I like. I see the primary source stuff like the Pentagon Papers or Snowden or Smedley Butler. You know, each generation kind of has their their like just holy crap, how did the how did they lie to to all those people and, and keep those things hidden? So I don't yeah. know. I I'll get there and, and you might be a catalyst for that for sure. It's an interesting rabbit hole. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Depressing, depressing and uh yeah. makes you paranoid a little bit, but yeah. A little bit. <laughs> All right. So anyway, enough of uh, enough of that. I want to kind of I I wanted you to come and discuss um, something and, and kind of I don't know bolster or provide maybe different perspective to something that that um, you know I've talked about a bit before and something that I think you you can really speak into. So I'd I'd like to kind of get into uh, to the line of questioning and just kind of see where we go. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds good. All right, so you you might have listened to one of the episodes I think that you mentioned um, where I kind of give a little bit of my background. And for me, the 2016 election was was a really big catalyst for me to realize who I was, who my group was, um, and how we were really you know consequentialists. The ends justified the means, and of course, once you once you deny that the ends justify the means for real, you when you start to evaluate. Christianity and morality and all these other things, there's a lot that just, you know, you have to reassess for sure. 
Um, and, and, and during that time, like looking back to the early church, because I had always been taught, grew up in Christian circles, I was taught that I was handed this Christianity that, that you know, was passed down since Jesus himself. But when I started to look at the early church, I was like, no, nah, there's, there's, there's some uh, integrity issues here for sure. Um, and, but, you know, as, as you start talking to people about whether it's, it's nonviolence or anarchism or um, not having greed, like giving up your possessions like the early church did, a lot of the early church, you know, they're like, well, that's, that's just idealistic. You know, we, we can't do that. Um, maybe some people are called to that, but, but that's really idealistic. And so when I listened to your episode and you talked about striving for the ideal, um, I, I loved that idea. It reminded me of like, you know, water seeks its level and it seems like Christians should seek the ideal. Um, so I'd love for you to just kind of go into that. Uh, talk about what do you mean that we should seek the ideal? What's your, your rationalization for that? Yeah, I guess my thought on that is that if you look at what the Bible teaches— we as Christians are to try to be perfect. It's be perfect as Christ is perfect, be holy as I am holy, New Testament and old. That's what we're striving for. We're striving to meet these principles that God has laid out for us and that are clear in scripture. And that's our goal. But we know at the same time that we're never going to do that. We're never going to be perfect. But there's this process of sanctification where we get better and better over time we start dealing with our sins and the struggles that we have and our temptations. And if we are progressing and if we are becoming better Christians, better people, closer to God, then these things should be improving in our lives. And we get a lot of talk throughout the New Testament, especially about fruit and bearing fruit, and that you should be able to see that in someone's life who's a Christian. And that fruit is going to come from them following the biblical principles. And so to me, I guess it is idealistic to say that we're trying to meet all of these biblical principles, but at the same time, I, I find it really hard to argue that we're not supposed to meet the biblical principles. Like, that doesn't really make a lot of sense to me if you believe in the Bible. And so it's pretty simple to me. If we're trying to meet the biblical principles, then you can't compromise on that whether it be in the field of government or the economy or your parenting or whatever it is, anything in life, all of our lives should reflect the principles that God has laid down for us. And so to me, that's a pretty straightforward and basic aspect of being a Christian. But for some reason, it, yeah, it, it seems like that's not everyone's perspective. And I'm actually not quite sure why. I'm not sure what the argument is against that, other than what I hear, especially when you get involved with conversations about the government or the state, it's usually a practical argument. And it's, oh, well, that may be true. That's the ideal. You know, that's what God would want eventually. But in reality, this is what we have. And I guess that's where I get into my other arguments of looking at the early church and looking at the people throughout the Bible and examples that we have, and they didn't compromise on their ideals. And typically when they did, it didn't go well. And so I, I think we have a pretty clear example throughout the scriptures of this fact that we should always be striving for the biblical ideal. And even though we know we're never going to hit it, that's always our goal. And that's always our filter 
that our worldview is filtered through. Yeah, it's almost like if we try to live out the biblical ideal, that would lead to suffering, persecution, and cross. So that can't be right. (laughs) (laughs) Except we are told to mimic Jesus in these ways. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So sanctification, I guess what you're saying is sanctification is an idealistic process. You know, Jesus says, hey, don't lust. And um, I don't know Christians, conservative Christians uh, in my group who would say, well, you know, lusting, that's kind of an ideal. Of course, we're going to lust. So let's just embrace it. Right. Yeah. Um, But we do, like you said, we do when it comes to the political arena or something else. So. um, So like what what implications do you think this this uh, seeking the ideal has in regard to to politics and why, why maybe do you see this um, dichotomizing of, okay, well, I'm not going to teach my kids to lust, even though I know that they're going to, um, but it's okay if we embrace these, these bad things in regard to governments. Yeah, yeah, I guess my issue is that no governmental system matches up with the biblical ideal and biblical principles, at least none that has existed and if you look biblically and go back to the beginning of, let's say, Mosaic Law, where God said, this is the ideal system for a society, a nation to be built around, there is no government. There's no formal government there. And then when they say, we want a government, we want a king, God clearly, very specifically says that this is a rejection of myself. And then as we get into the time of Jesus and his teachings, then he specifically says that my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, we'd have soldiers, we'd be fighting, there'd be a lot going on here. But that's not what my kingdom is. It's not political. And I guess a lot of people would say that the scriptures are not political, but I would argue that most of the Sermon on the Mount is actually extremely political if you actually apply it to every sphere of your world. And I think that's what we should be doing. And so when you apply these biblical principles to the government, things such as free will and not forcing someone into following the biblical principles that God has laid down, just like in the nation of Israel, in the Old Testament, they people were allowed to join and people were allowed to leave. And this was a voluntary deal. No one was forced at the point of a sword to follow Mosaic law. And the same is true with Christianity. We are not to impose that by force on anyone else. And so when you apply those same principles to the state, there's no way for a modern state to exist if it does not apply force and coercion, because that's what the state is. And so you can argue that there might be some practical reasons for the state to exist, but that's a totally separate argument. If you're looking at the biblical principles, then there's really no justification for it. And so with that being said, I guess the implication would be that a Christian, in my opinion, shouldn't really have anything to do with the state or the political sphere. And I think that's backed up by the New Testament, by Yeshua's teachings and teaching about how his kingdom is not of this world. And I think we should be striving for something different. If we are trying to use political means to satisfy biblical ends, you're not going to find justification for that in the Bible. And I have a problem with that. So in my opinion, again, if we are seeking this ideal, following biblical principles, 
then we can't be seeking a route that doesn't line up with those, that doesn't mesh, it doesn't work. And so we have to do something different. But that would necessarily mean that we're not involved in political means, that that would be an area that would be not in line with our ideals and therefore we should not seek it. So government and politics are things that, in my opinion, as well as, as you know, the early church had very similar opinions, um, that I don't think that Christians should be involved in those realms. And so if we actually apply this idealistic, you could say, point of view, then from a biblical principles perspective, we don't have anything to do with the state. And that's kind of the implication there. Yeah. And, you know, even going to that that practical aspect of it, like I, I used to understand why we would think that taking the reins of, of political power would be productive. But I mean, the more, the more that I look into it now, I realize, well, it's not productive. It doesn't change people's hearts at all. But then secondly, like, I just recognize that my group defines what is what the ends are what what productive means so incorrectly because after 2016 when i like i have atheist friends homosexual friends i mean friends who aren't in that conservative christian group and when they saw the just like double standard of um what the conservative the moral christians were willing to do uh to compromise with it's like all of a sudden i recognized by by throwing off the ideal, um, we we just like we um, we became a an anathema to to atheists to like anybody who maybe had a chance of coming to know Christ, and so I, I recognize that like um, you know as as we do missions work and try to reach different groups, um, incarnation is a big word that we use like where we. You know, we need to go to them. We need to, um, we're not going to live in a compound and live way above their means. And we're not, we need to be like them and we need to go to them. But the the one aspect of incarnation, like when you think of Jesus's incarnation, like, yes, he comes down to earth. He becomes poor. He um, struggles with temptation, all of those kinds of things. But the one thing that he doesn't do is he doesn't throw off the ideal. Like he doesn't sin, right? he doesn't compromise because if he did, we would have zero hope because our hope is that yes, he comes to us, but he doesn't compromise so that he can bring us up to him. And so we like my group, we're like, oh, we need to dig into politics so we can legislate, but we're not thinking, how do we bring them up to this ideal? You know, we want them to be, to have good marriages. We want them to be moral people, but we compromise the ideal to force that on them as opposed to bringing them up to us. Um, yeah. So um, one of the questions that I would have, though, is when you when you throw around the word ideal, this idea of ideal gets, if people get accused of this in all different kinds of groups. So a communist or a socialist be like, well, you're just an idealist. You know, yeah, maybe... In a perfect world, socialism would be great because then everybody would be provided for. But that's just idealistic. Um, or capitalism might be called idealistic because, oh, yeah, it would be really nice if the system would just kind of work itself out and um, there wouldn't be people who'd take the reins of power and use money to gain more power. But that's idealistic. Pacifism is idealistic. 
And so a lot of times like you'll have communism and capitalism are two very op- on very opposite ends of the spectrum, but they're both called idealistic. So how do you know which ideal is the idealistic one that you're supposed to embrace if you're supposed to embrace an ideal? I guess what I would say is that the ideal is the kingdom of God, and that's what we're taught throughout the scriptures, Old Testament and New, that we are to fall in line with God's principles, and that's the ideal. And so I'm actually working out a framework currently for a book I'm doing and some future episodes on my podcast about the natural order of things. And so you've got this idea, like what Paul talks about in Romans, I believe Romans 1, where he talks about how God can be seen. You can derive that there is a God, that he is powerful and eternal and divine just by looking at nature and looking around. That's obvious. No one has any excuse because he has made himself known through the natural order, the natural world. We have examples of ancient religions and ancient myths that all seem to be in line with this perspective of the biblical narrative of the spiritual world, of creation, of a flood, of these types of things. There's all these similarities where it seems like there was an original source that all of these would have sprung from because they have so many similarities among themselves. And Christianity is the one thing that kind of ties them all together. They all are related to Christianity, even though they're not all related to each other. And if you look at something like the Holy Spirit, that we are led by the Spirit and he reveals things to us, he guides us, he teaches us. That is another form. We have all these different forms. You have Mosaic Law, you have the teachings of Yeshua and all the scriptures, you have the prophets. We have all these different things that are all talking about the principles of God and what his ideal is. What is God's order for the universe? And that's what we're supposed to be in line with. And that is personified by this idea of the kingdom of God, that this is God's kingdom. God's kingdom has these rules and principles, X, Y, and Z, and that is what we are supposed to be seeking, period. And that will be the perfect world at the end of time, and that would have been the perfect world that possibly existed in the Garden of Eden. And perfection is this. It is the kingdom of God. It is love. It is falling in line with this natural order, the way that God set things up. And so if that's our ideal, then it really doesn't have anything to do with socialism, communism, any kind of political structure, because it's not necessarily political, even though it is dealing with how we treat other people, how we organize as a people group and a society, all of these types of things, they are covered. So it does cover political aspects, but it's not a political system. In the end, it's basically just falling in line with God. So maybe a theonomy or maybe theocracy or something like that. Uh, But overall, it's just we as individual Christians are responsible for ourselves. And we are to fall in line with these biblical principles. And we are to be a part of the kingdom of God. And as a church, as a whole, all Christians around the world are one in being members of this kingdom of God. We're representatives of God. We are ambassadors of God. There's a lot of these uh, different uh, aspects of language that are used to describe our role, but it's all about being image bearers of God, that we are to represent God on earth. People will look at us and they will be pointed towards God the Father. 
Yeshua does this as well as he teaches. He always points to God the Father, not to himself. Even though he is God, it's something that is always something that he does. He always points to God the Father. It always goes back to God and biblical principles. Everything always does. And so that's the ideal. That's the kingdom of God. And I would actually argue that even though that's an ideal, and I I agree with that, and that's idealistic from that perspective, I would actually argue that it's also practical. Because when you look at the nation of Israel, for example, all the way up until they had kings and kind of abandoned the Mosaic law, and probably early on, they were probably under Mosaic law, but all through Judges, they did what was right in their own eyes. And that didn't go well either. But if you go to the actual ideal of following God's principles, it seems to go pretty well. And even when you look like through Judges and you look at how the Israelites fared under those conditions, and again, that was anarchy in the sense that there was no king, but they were doing what was right in their own eyes and making their own decisions and only occasionally getting in line with the biblical principles. So the main thing that was missing was the state. It was the centralized government, even though, again, they're not totally in line with biblical principles. But even keeping that in mind, the time period of judges seems to be just as good, if not better, as the time period of the Israelite kings. You go into the kings and there's a lot more war. There's a lot more corruption. There's a lot more wrath from God that comes down on them. And again, judges wasn't perfect by any means. They did a lot of bad things and God did punish them and it wasn't perfect. Anarchy is not our ideal. Our ideal is to follow God. But even if you look at just this one aspect of getting rid of the state, getting rid of the government, then that actually worked better for the Israelites than it did having their kings. And if you look in the New Testament, you have a great example of these Christians, the early church, who did not give much regard to the Roman government, to the state. And instead, they set up their own welfare system. They had their own court system, so to say. They handled their own issues. They pitched in all of their resources. They held things in common. At least one example was them doing that. And when they would go out, they would go out to other places to teach the good news and tell people about God and Yeshua and these biblical principles and how they should live and basically explaining this good news to everybody. They would do so through the um, the generosity of their church, of their fellow believers. They would be supported by that. They didn't get a government grant. They didn't go to Rome and say, hey, we need some money because we're going to pass along morality to these barbarians out here. No, they did it on their own. They were not connected to the state. And it, I have heard some episodes that you've done where you quoted some of the early church fathers saying that a Christian, and their opinion was this, that a Christian should not be involved in high political office. Some would say that a Christian should not be a soldier. At a bare minimum, they would say a Christian should not kill, even if he is a soldier. He should not participate in that. And so it seems as though the early church, they were living under a government. And it is very clear, Romans 13, good example, there are many others, that we should submit to the governing authorities above us. But submission is very different than support and involvement. And so if we're not to be involved with the state, with the government, with political means, because that doesn't line up with 
biblical ideals, then what do we do? We go against the state? Well, no, we're not supposed to go against the state either. We're supposed to submit. And so that's where you get this example of Jesus. This is what he does. He does his own thing. He does help people, but he doesn't do it by paying a state and lobbying, getting legislation passed and becoming a political leader and making sure certain people get an office so that you know we can help the poor. No, he does it himself. And his disciples do it themselves. The church does it themselves. So it's, it's more of a disregard of the state because we can't be involved with it because it doesn't line up with biblical principles, but we also can't rebel from it or actively fight it because that also doesn't line up with biblical principles. And so we're stuck in this position of submission without support. But in my opinion, at least, I think this is a very good position to be in And it can practically be very good because if me as an individual, if I choose to grow a garden in my backyard, I choose to um, take measures for data privacy so I'm not being tracked and traced everywhere and I'm not on you know, different lists and different systems and getting censored and all this stuff. Or if I homeschool my kids and don't put them in a public school system that's going to teach them ways that I am that are not in line with biblical principles. Um, If I do not get involved with politics, but instead find like-minded people in my community and grow a community around these values and this morality, even if they're not Christian, it's not necessarily that it has to be Christian. You can be you can be in line with the biblical principles in general, whether you are a Christian or not. Loving your neighbor is not something that you have to be a Christian to do. You can sacrifice for other people. You can help the poor. You can unite as a community together and help one another, whether you're a Christian or not. So these are all things that we can do as individuals that are in line with the biblical principles and our ideal. They're also totally separate from the state. We're not really giving much attention to the state at all, but we're also not actively fighting it. But in doing so, if I grow my own food and I'm not buying stuff at the grocery store as much, I'm not spending as much in taxes. If I am bartering and trading amongst this group of local people around me, I'm also not paying taxes. And on one hand, you could argue that you render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. But on the other hand, if you know that that money you render unto Caesar is going to murder innocent people and other horrible things, then you probably should avoid rendering unto Caesar, but without absolutely rejecting and fighting Caesar. And so if I am just doing things on my own and with my local community, if the kingdom of God is being, it's growing, it's being promoted, it's being acted out in real life, then we are automatically withdrawing not only funds, but we are withdrawing support. We're withdrawing consent. We are withdrawing that power of the state. The state has power because we give it to them. The state doesn't have power over millions of people because a few thousand people somehow can control them. If the masses rose up, there's nothing they could do aside from just kill them all. And that doesn't really win the hearts and minds very well. That wouldn't go well. And so the reason they have this power, this control is because we give it to them as the people under them. And a lot of people believe, honestly believe, a lot of Christians, that the state is there to protect and to protect our freedoms, to protect our safety, to administer God's wrath even, depending on who you're talking to. Um, People honestly believe this. But again, we've already covered. 
if the state is not in line with biblical principles, then that's not a means that we can use for these things. If we leave vengeance to God, then we're not using the state to do it. And if we're not to rebel, and uh, there were plenty of people in Jesus's time that were all for rebelling against Rome. The, the zealots were all about this, and there were multiple movements like this, and they didn't go well either. But if you look at the way uh, that Jesus, the disciples, the early church handled things, they ended up creating a situation where Christianity is the whole basis for all of Western society within a few hundred years. So without being involved in politics, without actively fighting, rebelling, or using violence or coercion of any kind, without doing any of this stuff, they dominated the world. And so, you know, the negative examples you can think of are typically when the church got involved with the state. So you have like Constantine, for example, and Christianity becoming mainstream in the Roman Empire and Rome falling a little while after that and Christianity getting a bad name. And you've got the church around the time of the Reformation. The church had gotten fairly corrupt in its hierarchy. The popes had gotten very corrupt and things weren't going well. But if you look at how much interaction there was between the church and the state at the time, it wasn't nation states as we think of them today, but still it was the monarchs. It was the lords and the noble class and all of these people. Heck, you had some Medicis that were popes. And you have a lot of examples like this where you had politicians that became popes and popes that became politicians, and it that didn't go well. But again, e even the Old Testament, you look at David, one of the greatest kings of the Israelites, and what were all of his major downfalls that are recorded? You had him uh, having his affair, and the reason he had that affair is because he was king. If he was not king, he could not have called her to his house you know, more than likely, that probably wouldn't have gone well. But the same would be true of murdering Uriah after that, where he was the king. He could give commands to the military and had a man murdered. And you have lots of other examples like that in David's life and how it went with his kids even. A lot of that had to do with the fact that he was the king, that he was involved with the state. And so this marriage of church and state never goes well. So I would say that the obvious solution would be that we, number one, seek this ideal of biblical principles. We, number two, actually act that out in our lives in practical, hands-on ways. And number three, we don't get involved with the state. We don't mix church and state. We don't get involved with political means. And I think if we do this, we are modeling ourselves after the early church set up by Yeshua himself under God's direct guidance, under the Holy Spirit's direct guidance, and we are following this movement that was the most successful movement that we have a record of of all time. And so I would say that not only is that idealistic, that's very practical and realistic because we have actual proof of that. And so that's where I think we should be going. Yeah, so let me, There, there's a lot there. Let me um, make one observation and then maybe... Let me summarize something that I think is an important point, and you tell me if I, I get it correct. So observation, one of the things that you said I think is really interesting. I mean, I realized that they didn't have a king before First Samuel 8, you know, uh, and there were judges. But as you were talking about that, and correct me if I'm wrong, or maybe it's just something that, that we need to look into later, but um, 
yeah, they did really bad things. But in Judges, there's always this cycle. And it's it's like after what, like 40 years, it's, it's generational. So like when one generation screws it up, within 40 years, they're like, okay, God, we're sorry. We, we recognize our, our failure. Like, please save us. And God delivers them. But when you get into the king period um, or the monarchy, I, you go for very long periods of time where there isn't that cycle of repentance because the people don't really, there's not that individual insight. There's not um, that individual freedom to do that. And you've got these people at the top who control things and who grasp at power and are corrupted, who, um, you know, I would say probably prevent that cycle from occurring. Is that, I mean, are you biblically astute? Like, is that um, kind yeah. of what you see? Yeah, I mean, that's actually not something that I had seen, but I've I've actually been doing a lot of work recently over the past year on historical cycles and patterns. And that's something that does happen over and over again throughout all the history of mankind is that things move in cycles. I mentioned the the natural order of things, and that's one of the principles that I have in my framework there is cycles, that that is something that happens. There are life cycles, there are ecosystem cycles, there are historical cycles, there are cycles in a person's life. Like Cycles are just a part of the reality that God created and that we live in. And yeah, it's, it is very interesting that you're right. In Judges, they always do cycle back to coming to God and seeking a godly leader. And that happens. And there is a key difference between a leader and a ruler. And I think that's also very important. And so then when you get to the monarchy, they don't necessarily have, like you said, the freedom. They don't have the liberty. It's not voluntary because they are just citizens and they are under the ruler instead of them following leaders and seeking God's direction. So yeah, those are two very different things. And and I agree. I think that aspect of them always cycling back around and there's new hope, there's a new beginning, they try again. You know, this is much more positive than just like the total reign of corruption aside from a handful of kings throughout the entire state of the nation of Israel. So yeah, I, th- I think that is a good observation. Yeah, um, that's. I, it's been a while since I've read Judges, so I don't. I don't know the timing and everything. Um, but if that's something that you do, I would really love if you, you know, if you looked into that and said, "Well, what are the cycles in Judges versus, you know, what are the lengths of the cycles in uh, of the monarchy?" That would be that'd be really interesting. Yeah, um, definitely. So one of the so now if I could summarize kind of. Uh, one of the points that I that I think you were making or you hit on, and you can tell me if I I'm mischaracterizing it or not. But you know, the question that I asked you is, well, how do you know what the ideal is? And you said, well, it's the kingdom of God. And and um, then a lot of what you talked about was so when I was thinking about like socialism, capitalism, and whatever whatever the ism is that that people call idealistic. A lot of times we call those things idealistic because of the ends. So like, well, we'll never arrive at a socialistic society where everybody's provided for. We'll never arrive at a, at a capitalistic society where everybody, you know, it all balances out and everybody's provided for. Um, but on on the, the kingdom of God, God doesn't hold us responsible for the ends. He holds us responsible for the means. And so it's it's idealistic and it, 
in a different sense because like you kept using the word practical because God prescribes the means. Um, it's not this idealistic goal we'll never reach, but it's this practical thing that we can implement on a, on a daily basis. I mean, it's like Adam and Eve, right? You can look at the garden of Eden and God prescribes, don't eat this tree. It's a stupid prescription. It seems to me like, just don't put the tree there, but God prescribes it and don't do it. Right. But they wanted to determine good and evil for themselves. And they wanted to determine the means. And when they did all hell broke loose, literally. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I, is that a, an okay summary of, of maybe what you were saying? Yeah, yeah, I'd say so. I think you're spot on. Okay. All right, good. Because sometimes <laughs> I, mis- I misunderstand things or I, I put my own things into it. So, um, good. All right. Um, I, I was reading a book a while back um, about just war theory, the history of just war theory, um, from, from a pacifistic perspective. And one of the things that, that he showed me that, um, that I can't now unsee, because I've always been, I've always felt like I've been on the defensive as a pacifist, where it's, you know, it's not idealistic, it's practical, you know, all that kind of stuff. And in his book, he's, he's basically showing how pretty much every war we've ever gone to has not really adhered to just war principles. And, how the results have never really been what we thought they would be and how it perpetuates violence and all this kind of stuff. And he's like, you want to talk about idealism, like uh, just war theory and, and government, like that's idealistic. Um, could you maybe kind of uh, flip the script here? You know, we we're defending how anarchism or, um, you know, the kingdom, I like the kingdom of God better. The kingdom of God is uh, this idealism that we should, pursue because we can put the things that God has prescribed into practice. Can you flip that and kind of go on the the offensive and and say, well, this is how the military or war or governments are really um, falsely idealistic. Like they're idealisms without hope of of, um, prescriptions that work. Yeah. Yeah. And I would say that just the basic principle of hey, let's get this small group of elite people, put them in charge of everybody else, and things are going to go great. And it's like, well, you know, obviously that's probably not going to go very well. They're probably going to seek out their own wealth, power, influence, all these things. That's just human nature, especially if they're fallen human beings that sin and have their own sin natures. And the way we are describing it here, if you have a Christian that is constantly seeking the biblical ideal, the principles of God, they are not going to be in that seat of power. They are not going to rule over other men because otherwise they wouldn't be following the principles of God. And so you're necessarily going to have at least the majority of people in a government, in a state who are not following God's principles, who have power over mass amounts of people and wealth. And for some reason, we think that that's going to go well for the little guy. And it's like, that's extremely idealistic. And if you look at something like uh, the wars in the Middle East, for example, a lot of people would say, and it it comes around every few years. I saw a clipping in a newspaper the other day that said, if we pull out of Afghanistan, then there's going to be chaos and it's not going to go well. And it's just, it doesn't make sense to me because if you look at 
what has happened since we went into Afghanistan, it's been chaos and it hasn't gone well. We've been at war ever since and their country is destroyed. And that it's a good example because if you look prior to us coming in, the Taliban had actually cut opium production to like 10% of what it was before. And so that I think most of us would agree would be a pretty solid thing. They had created a fairly stable society and you know we can have all the disagreements we want on whether the Taliban is good or not. I'm not saying they're good, but I am saying that that was the state of things before we entered. After we entered, not only did opium production go back to original levels, it then went up exponentially with our soldiers guarding the poppy fields. And that's still going on. And so to say that us going to Afghanistan and bringing peace is realistic, like, just, it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't compute. Like, look at what actually happened. If you look at the facts, look at history and look at what's going on today, that's not the case. And so I think we can make very good and solid arguments for war being something that is very idealistic. And then you mentioned corruption and conspiracy earlier on. If you look at the how all of these wars started, virtually every single modern war since 1900, it's always on a lie. And it is always for some sort of power play or political incentives or something. So you've got like the Gulf of Tonkin incident is probably the, the easiest and most obvious where we sent troops into Vietnam as America, America did this. And uh, we did this because of the Gulf of Tonkin incident that one of our ships got attacked. Well, then it came out later that our ship didn't actually get attacked and that that basically was a lie. And that this Gulf of Tonkin resolution that was voted on and that sent ground troops to Vietnam was written before the Gulf of Tonkin incident. Um, kind of like the Patriot Act was written years before 9-11. Uh, lots of these kinds of things happen over and over and over again. And every single war is like that. Like they, uh, according to government investigations themselves, they knew about Pearl Harbor at least the day before Pearl Harbor actually happened. They allowed that to happen. And there's even documentation. They're trying to find a way to get Japan to attack us so that we could get into the war from a just perspective. That was the whole goal. How can we make this a just war? And it's, oh, we have to be attacked first. And we poked and prodded. We got attacked. We knew about it and we didn't stop it. And so, you know, plenty of arguments there, but that's the actual facts. You can argue about motivation all you want, but that's the way it went down. And so to think that being involved in these wars is realistic, I, I just, I don't think you can actually back up that argument. I think every time you look at this, look at the state of Europe after World War I and after World War II. Look at the things that we did to the Germans where we starved their civilians and hundreds of thousands of people died. Look at the genocide in Yemen that's going on today still with our sport. I mean, all of this stuff, it's, it's not only not in line with the biblical principles, it is anti-biblical. It is completely against. It's destruction. It is death. It is corruption. It is perversion. It's all of these things. And so if you're going to say that having a government is realistic, or at least having a government and that going well for the people of that government 
is realistic, then I, I, I just think that that's wrong. And I think I can historically and factually show that that is wrong. Whereas I can historically and factually show that when people group together as a community in line with biblical principles, that overall that goes well and that creates a good society in comparison. And the only catch there, and it's a pretty big catch, is that oftentimes there is suffering involved with that. That group is then persecuted. But if you look throughout history, every time the church is persecuted, it grows exponentially much faster, much bigger, much stronger than it does when the church is lulled into complacency. And so when you get usually the church and state combined, then the church is kind of left to its own devices in a sense and gets corrupt, typically. And when the church is being persecuted and rooted out and attacked by the culture, by the state, that's usually when the church thrives, it flourishes. And Paul even talks about how struggles and sacrifice and hardships, these things make us stronger. And I think we can just, we can intuit that just by thinking logically that if I go through something hard, then when I make it through that, I am going to be better off. I'm going to learn lessons. I'm going to be stronger. That's the whole principle of working out and building muscle is you break down the muscle and it builds back stronger. That's the whole point. And so I think there are pretty basic principles to show that the kingdom of God is seeking the ideal, but it is also very practical and realistic, whereas the state is something that is not very realistic and is extremely idealistic, no matter whether you go far right, far left, or in the middle. It, it's just, it, it doesn't work. And it's an ideal that no one will ever have. And I don't know if no one, if anyone ever even wants the state to have ultimate control and be completely successful. So it, yeah, I, I think that I'm with you that the state and following and supporting the state is a very idealistic move. Uh, thinking that a political system is going to fix society's problems is extremely idealistic. Whereas getting involved ourselves individually with our local community and acting out the Sermon on the Mount and biblical principles, I can show that that is a very realistic, very practical, and that actually works. So... I think that's a pretty solid argument, personally. Yeah, yeah. and and even if it didn't work, uh, especially for my group, conservative Christians, if we believe in objective morality, it doesn't really matter. That's what God told us to do, so we do yeah. it. Um, yeah. yeah, we're not to we're not to choose how to live our lives and choose our actions based on what's practical and what we think will work. No, we are supposed to base that on what God tells us to do. So, to me, that's why I always put the practical argument secondarily. Right. Because it's the moral argument first. And if the moral argument doesn't hold, then you shouldn't do it. Just period. That's what the Bible teaches. Yeah. And that's one of the beautiful things, though, I think about uh, you know the, the way that God creates his universe is that even though I ground, I ground my actions in objective morality, I expect that a good God who created a good universe would have ordered things such that doing the right thing would inevitably, ultimately lead to the best practical results. Now, it might take more time. It's an investment. It's a seed that's that's sprouting and growing. But um, ultimately, it's going to, to lead to the deepest positive practical good. Yeah. Yeah. And that's even, that's even a biblical pattern that we see over and over again, that when 
the people of God as a whole, when the society follows his ways, that society prospers. And when that society does not follow his ways, that society generally is destroyed. And the same is true with individuals. When individuals follow God's ways throughout the biblical narrative and all the stories and all the different historical time periods, those individuals in the end prosper, whereas those that do not follow his ways in the end don't. So you can look at David, for example, and look at how his life turned out and his kids and all the horrible things that happened. Um, Same thing with Solomon at the end of his life as he kind of pursued other gods and had all these wives and was led astray and things didn't go as well for him in the end. Whereas if you look at someone like Joseph, where at the beginning, he was a slave and things weren't going really well. He went through some hard times, but he stuck to following God's principles and in the end was second in charge of all of Egypt. And so we see these examples over and over and over again that that not only is there this ideal that we store up treasures in heaven that eventually will have this judgment day where we'll be held accountable and we will uh, we will reap some rewards in the afterlife for the good things that we have done you know there's this aspect to it the eternal aspect but we also have this practical aspect the real world aspect that in our lives today there is a difference in how they turn out and you have someone like Paul who is he's in prison from a materialistic point of view he's in a bad spot. Things aren't going well for him. He's chained up in prison. That's not good. But he says he has joy. He is singing. He is praying for people. Like he's actually having a good time. Like this isn't bad for him in his mind from his perspective. And I think that's one of the huge benefits is that when we have that worldview and that perspective of God's ways, and we have faith in God, and we are sticking to his principles, then even when our surroundings, our physical state of being is bad, even when it is just objectively from all perspectives bad, we can still have joy. We can still have purpose. We can still be in a much better state than someone who has all the wealth and fame and power in the world. And so, you know, what's more important? Is it more important to have a bunch of wealth, power, and fame? Or is it more important to live a satisfied life with happiness and with love and with support? And so, yeah, I mean, just from so many different perspectives, following God's ways is the way to go. And I think that's what we should do. Yeah, yeah. The qualitative state, I think, is is an important distinction um, because there are so many pe- materialists who, who aren't satisfied. But I, I'd also say that I think, especially in, in empires, you know, like the American empire, we, we focus so much on immediate gratification. And so you have a lot of people who they get immediate results and they say, well, look, what I did works. It reminds me of, of um, Enron. You know, Enron, they're cooking the books. They're doing all this kind of crazy stuff. And I mean, their stock soars. And they're like, hey, look, what we're doing is working. But what, what the evil people do is that they're sowing seeds of destruction within their own empire and the chickens come home to roost eventually, right? And so Enron destroyed itself because of its practices, even though in the immediate term, it looked like they were doing the right thing, the good thing. And and I think that's how it works for both the good and the bad. You know, we we in faith, like Abraham and, you know, the hall of faith, we sow seeds of righteousness, knowing that it might not lead to fruition, um, 
in our lifetime, but but it will because we trust God. And and that's what so much of this comes down to in my mind is it's um, and it's probably why we don't Sabbath anymore either because we don't trust God with with our lives with our resources. Yeah. So, it kind of it talked about the 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 bad of government, and I get that. Like it makes sense to me at least that government's bad, and I think most people would say, yeah, most governments are bad a lot of the time. But and some governments are are bad just some of the time, but all governments are not great. But the alternative to have no government is worse. And and in my mind, the thing that I would think of is how would the world not devolve into something like Mad Max or, um, you know, uh, The Walking Dead, where you get these just factions that pop up, or maybe a little bit uh, less kind of um, fictionally Afghanistan and the Taliban, you get warlords, um, because groups are going to congeal and and try to assert their dominance and power over over smaller people in their region or even then to to other regions. So how does how does anarchism not end up becoming making the United States become Afghanistan? So I think there's two parts to this. Number one is that we should always keep in mind that anarchism is not our goal, that that having a state and having men ruling over other men is not biblical and we shouldn't support that, which necessarily means that anarchism would be more in line with our ways. But our ideal is the kingdom of God, which is God ruling. It's not that no one rules, it's that God rules. So there is law, there is order, there is a ruler, but it's only the righteous and just ruler, God. And so that is very different than, say, secular anarchism. But I guess I would argue that secular anarchism is still much more in line than having a state or a government. And yes, you probably would have warlords of some type or you know, big mega corporations nowadays that would take over different industries or different areas. And let's say that worst case scenario that happened. Well, hey, at least you have competing warlords that only have control over small areas and small portions of the economy who are still having to trade, who are still having to make deals, who are still having to compete. Whereas right now we just have one giant warlord that controls everything and takes more than half of our money. I, I, I don't see how, um, how you could argue that that's a good thing. And so, yes, it, it could turn out worse. Yes, it could turn out better. We, we can't tell the future, but we can say that what we have now is immoral. We have a we have warlords. We have one group of warlords at the top that control everything in an entire country. They take more than half of that country's wealth and spend it on whatever they want. And they are influenced by the oligarchy of elites, so to say, where you've got, you know, people involved with mega corporations, you've got big foundations, you've got all these different people and groups that have a lot of influence on the government because they're paying millions of dollars and they're lobbying and doing all these things and have all these connections. Those are the people with power. And those are the people that those are the warlords in charge of our current system. And so the warlords have taken over. They are taking our stuff. They are forcing yeah. us to do what they want. No, that, that's, so, that's such a good point. No, that's such a good point. Yeah. Cause I, I think like, 
well, what would I do? You know, Osama bin Laden comes to my house and he, he tries to extract money from me, you know, like the mafia. I'm like, well, wait, our warlords, they do one better. They make me come to them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I guess that's where I insert something like anarcho-capitalism, where it's a system where you don't have a state and instead the organizing factor of society is the market. And my personal opinion, and I, I think it's more than my personal opinion, but I'll just state it as an opinion, is that the market is something that can be in line with biblical principles, whereas the state cannot. And I would agree that we do need some sort of organization, that we are hardwired for hierarchy and leadership, that some people are good managers and organizers, and that's not a bad thing. I would just argue that ruling over other people is a bad thing, and that's immoral, and that's unbiblical. But if you have a system where the markets are more in control, then you've got some really good aspects that are mimicking aspects of the kingdom of God. And so, for example, in a free and open market, the way that you make money and that you succeed as an individual or as a company or as you know, a voluntary state that springs up or a warlord or whatever, the way you succeed is by serving the market demand. And that's it. You can't, you can't force people into anything. And if you try, if you start showing up at people's doorsteps with guns and tell them, you know, you have to give me all your wealth, well, how long is that going to work for you? It's not going to take very long until no one has any more wealth and you're done. And so you just can't, make it work that way unless you have people's support. And again, going back to what I said earlier on, like that's why states have the power they have now is because they have people's support. You could argue it's indoctrination, it's brainwashing, it's you know people not thinking th things through, whatever, coercion, force, but that's the way they have power. And so at least in a market-based society, you have lots of different competing groups. And let's say it's corporations, for example. And so you have, let's say, a monopoly corporation that comes up and they you know, have this monopoly on this one whole area of our economy. Let's say it's all of food. You know, That's extremely important. All of agriculture, it's one company in charge of all this. Well, currently, we have one company in charge of every single aspect of our economy. And so uh, that's a monopoly over everything. At least we are breaking this monopoly up into these different areas. And more than likely it is going to be a different company that is going to serve the market best and make the most profit and be the most successful at raising beef, that's going to be a different company than the one that is making soft drinks, which is going to be a different company than the one that is making you know, widgets for XYZ. These are different companies that are going to fill different niches that are going to be successful in different areas. And again, the way they are successful is by serving the market. But and, would, would it really be that way? Because, I mean, we see we see conglomerations right now. Like, if uh, I'm sure you've seen the, the pictures where it's like, you know, this this company, I don't know, General Mills or something, or Nestle. Well, really, they've got like 70 different things that are under Nestle. They're just called different things to make it look like they're different companies. Um, isn't that what eventually happens on, on anarcho-capitalism and because you you basically you encourage greed it's kind of darwinian you know uh in a sense just like let it let it play out um yeah yeah i struggle with that 
uh, was thinking about how that would work because it seems like power always always dominates. Yes, and that is possible, very possible. You know, you might even say that it's probable. But I guess the idea is that that would be over time you would have a conglomeration that has a lot of control over the society and compare that to what we have now where we currently have one organization in charge of all of society it, you know it's uh, you could argue that you know we already have the monopoly and so to argue that oh eventually we're going to get this monopoly it's like well we already have that well and, and so, nestle doesn't have a military so i guess that's a positive true and the way that most of these mega corporations are as big as they are is because they lobby and they get regulations passed that stifles their competition. They get grant money and government contracts. You look at someone like Amazon, you know, they're just they just bleed money, or at least they used to. I think now they make a small profit on their retail business, you know, which is what you think of Amazon for. But they make a lot of money on their web services. And some of their biggest uh, customers are people like the NSA, the CIA, the Department of Defense. It's government contracts. It's government money. And so you look at where Google got a lot of its uh, money to get up and running. And that came from, uh, part of it came from connections to InQtel, which is the CIA's like venture capital arm in a sense. And a lot of big tech companies, you go back to the root of how they got their money, how they were successful, how they continued to get big and make more and more and higher and higher profits, how they kept out their competition. It's generally all involvement with the state. And again, if you don't have that involvement with the state, it's a lot harder to get to that level because you have pure competition instead of being able to use this giant monopoly over all of society to your benefit. And so I would say that is much less likely that you have giant monopolies running things or giant warlords running things in a totally free market society than a society that has a state that is used by these warlords and these companies. And so yeah. that would be my argument. Um, and I would say that, yes, it does incentivize greed. You could say that, and that would be a negative aspect. But the way that I would frame that is that it incentivizes meritocracy, where you are rewarded for your merit, which is the parable of the talents, where you know the, the man comes to his servants and he gives a certain number of talents to each one of the servants. Then he comes back a long time later, and some of them have made a lot of money on the money that he gave them. And one guy buried it in the ground, didn't make a thing. And what happens? The people that were more successful that made profits, that invested it well, you know, these are things in line with capitalism, then those people were rewarded and given even more. Whereas the person that did nothing with it did not. And that's how anarcho-capitalism works, where if you don't have a state, you have a totally free and open market, then it's the company or the individual or the entrepreneur that satisfies market demand the best, that has the best product at the best price, they are the ones that get more customers. They are the ones that earn a better profit. And when they get more money because they're earning a higher profit, then they will reinvest that money into a new business venture or expanding their business. And so the businesses that grow and the businesses that develop and succeed are the ones that are the best place for that money to go. You don't have the misallocation of resources where those that fail are funneled more money which is what the state often does. 
And so that's a distortion. When you have a totally free and open market, it is the successful people and businesses that are actually meeting market demand that are rewarded. And that is a biblical principle. You have something like free will that is in a market-based system where I am a customer. I don't have to buy things from Walmart. If let's say there's no state and totally anarcho-capitalist society, and you have these different corporations that I can choose from, I can choose because I am not forced to buy certain products or you know pay for certain services. So free will is an aspect of the kingdom of God. That's a biblical principle. You've got something like uh, spontaneous order is an interesting one because the market is run by spontaneous order. There is no one that is in, let's say, New York City, who is the czar of bread and says, we will have X amount of loaves of bread that we will make tomorrow morning. And and he allocates certain amounts of flour to certain bakers and tells them to make it. No one's in charge of any of that. It just spontaneously happens that there's enough bread for everybody every day. And, you know, sometimes there's a little more, sometimes there's a little less. And the market has mechanisms for balancing that out. And the market is very efficient and effective at these things. And so that's something that I would say is similar to the natural order, what the systems that God has created, these things organize themselves. They work together. Spontaneous order is much more in line with the principles of God than centralized control by human beings. Yeah, it reminds me. would be opposite. It reminds me of, I was having a discussion with my friend about this and it, it reminds me almost exactly of invasive species. You know, when we when we're like, oh, we need to control this aspect of nature, and you introduce this this invasive species, and then it takes over in ways that you couldn't account for, and then you introduce another invasive species to counteract that, and it it's just a, a snowball effect of of terribleness. And so you just take your hands off of it, and nature nature it does a good job of of uh, correcting, yeah. 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 And I would say that, you know, I highly doubt that an anarcho-capitalist society would be perfect. I highly doubt that things would go extremely well. My guess is it would be more like judges, where it still doesn't go perfectly. It still doesn't go well in many ways. But I, my guess, at least, is that it would be better. And if nothing else, again, going back to the idea of morality versus a practical perspective... We as Christians are to always seek the ideal. We are to always follow biblical principles and act morally. We are never to compromise with that. So one thing we never compromise on is God, period, and his ways. That's it. And so with that, it doesn't really matter if anarcho-capitalism would work out better than statism. Even though I can argue it's less idealistic, it's more realistic, and we have some good examples to say it'd probably work pretty well, even if it didn't, following the state and supporting the state is immoral and it's unbiblical and we can't do it. So we've got to do something else. And I guess my argument would be that we follow the kingdom of God. It's not that I am out there trying to push for an anarcho-capitalist society because that's not my role. I am trying to push for the kingdom of God and that is a different thing. But the kingdom of God is much more in line with and can exist under an anarcho-capitalist society much better and much easier and much more in line than with a status society. 
Yeah, I think that's that's so important, and I'm glad you keep coming back to it, the kingdom of God, because there are all kinds of labels that we use to be helpful. Um, but, yeah, understanding that it's the kingdom of God that we're shooting for um, is is primary. So just to, to kind of summarize what I think the big takeaway was, was there, um, you kept coming back to, um, it, it seemed like, as I was thinking through it, um, corporations are, are big, in, at least in large part because of the way that they get government subsidies and, and calling out competition and, and things like that, and the way that they're able to grasp power over people. But in a society where you don't have centralized governments, sure, you're going to get people grasping at power, but it's going to be on a smaller scale. I can't imagine Afghani warlords coming up and creating nuclear weapons, you know, um, and not because Afghanis are stupid, not because um, not not because of anything inherent to them. But when you've got a group of a few thousand people here and a few thousand people there, you're not going to have the resources and, and connections to be able to to create atomic weapons, or it would at least be a lot harder. So the the scale of destruction and the scale of oppression would be smaller um, on a smaller scale, probably. Um, and yeah, I, um, is would you say that's at least one of the the benefits? Yeah, yeah, I'd say so. And if you want to get even more basic, throughout the Bible, we have this dichotomy between the kingdom of man and the kingdom of God. And so if you want to get real basic, it's which one are you going to follow and promote, the kingdom of man or the kingdom of God? And I mean, that's just the way it is. And unfortunately, most Christians are following the kingdom of man and supporting the kingdom of man while still trying to follow and support the kingdom of God. And they're just, they don't mesh. You can't combine the two. And I think that's pretty clear throughout the Bible, Old Testament and New that the kingdom of man is against the kingdom of God, and that in the end, God will judge nations, and the nations will be against God. And you can go back to the very beginning of creating you know, the monarchy that he said that was a rejection of me, or even going all the way back to Adam and Eve, and you know, we want to decide what's best for us, and we want to know right and wrong. We want to take these roles of God on ourselves. And you know, he's definitely says that's not good. And that is a sin that's going against him. And so, you know, just at the most basic level, if we're for the kingdom of God, then that necessarily means we're not for the kingdom of man, period. Yeah. And, um, you know, going, going back to the, the smaller scale destruction, um, in one of the episodes I did on government, uh, I was just, I was looking through statistics on, you know, the, the government killings so the soviet union and china and just all these massacres and um it's amazing i i forget the exact numbers but it was something to the extent of like if you look at individual murders like murders by individuals like in 2020 um you know you take that number and you say okay if i if i take china russia you know pick the five or ten worst atrocities by governments and and the year span that it took to to kill that that many people it would take something like 300 years for uh, for individual murders to reach what um, you know what governments did in like 30. Um, so yeah, the, it seems like the kingdom of God uh, doesn't look like that. It doesn't look like atrocity. Um, yeah. Yeah. 
So go, one last question I have for you here, um, you know, in your idealism episode and, and kind of touching on this anarcho-capitalism thing, um, you said something that it made sense to me when you said it, but I can't figure out how to piece it back together again. So I'm ho- hoping you'll remember it and you'll be able to kind of extrapolate. But when you're talking about the free markets, um, you said that free markets actually prevent discrimination because it's not simply majority rule. Um, it's not just 50.1% of people saying, hey, I want this. Now you have to deal with with not having that. But the market actually says, okay, well, what do those 20% want? And what does that 10% want? Um, it's kind of like a, a spectrum. So I'd love for you to elaborate on how because I think discrimination is a, is a big social justice word here. And, and I'm not using social justice pejoratively. Like I, I think that is very important. And discrimination and racism and, and those sorts of things are are big discussion points because we've done, the church has done a really bad job with that historically. So it doesn't seem to me, or it doesn't seem to a lot of people that it seems like capitalism takes advantage of people. You know, they're like, well, look at Amazon, the the billionaires, uh, Elon Musk, all those people, like they're just greedy billionaires and, um, you know, they just, they just rip people off. But your argument about the market actually preventing discrimination, I thought was fascinating. So I'd love to, I'd love for you to extrapolate on that because I think a lack of discrimination and leads to more kingdom mindedness because it, even if the market doesn't itself recognize the image of God and other people, as a Christian seeking the ideal, I want a system that will not tarnish the image of God and other people. So yeah. yeah, talk to me about that. Yeah, I guess uh, the the clarification I would make is that it's not that the markets prevent discrimination, it's just that it incentivizes someone to not discriminate. And so it, it, it's one of the the biggest pros with a market-based society and one of the biggest cons from a Christian perspective is that the way the market works, why it is so efficient and effective is because of its incentive models. But all of those incentives, most of those incentives at least, are economic in nature. So it's all about profits and money and wealth and power and influence, these types of things. You get more of those things when you satisfy market demand. And so on one hand, you could say, you know, that's probably the biggest incentives that humankind has. But on the other hand, it doesn't cover everything and it's not doing it from a moral perspective. But going back to this aspect of meeting demand at all ranges for all types of people with all types of preferences, the fact is that if a company doesn't do business with let's say, black people or Asians, or they pick some race or denomination or some people group of some kind, and they say, we are not doing business with these people. Well, they can do that. And you know, there's no state or nobody that's going to force them not to. But they are going to make less profit. They're going to make less money. They're going to have less power and influence if they choose to do so. And so they are incentivized not to. They are incentivized to reach as much of the market as possible so that they can be as successful as possible. And if there is a people group that is excluded, let's say you have, um, let's say it's Jewish people. You know, Jewish people are getting excluded by the 10 top corporations in this new anarcho-capitalist world, and they just don't really have any options. Well, 
that is now a very big market opportunity for an entrepreneur to come in and step in and say, hey, we will accept Jewish customers and probably charge even more for it because there's a lot of demand for it, just simple supply and demand. And they'll probably make really big profits off of it because they've got such a concentrated market that's locked in on them and they don't have a lot of competition. And so they are incentivized to meet that demand in the market, even though it's, you know, the only reason it exists is because of discrimination. That is legal discrimination in this world. But the incentive model is such that it will still get dealt with and that those people will still get served, even if they are in a very discriminatory environment. Okay, so so, let me take this uh, real world because... I hear what you're saying, but it's still hard for me, it's hard for me to believe that because I think of Jim Crow South, and I think there were a lot of black people in the Jim Crow South. I mean, I, I don't know if it was like fifty. I don't I don't know what the demographics were, but I mean, the slave populations in some areas. I mean, you you had some areas where it's like eighty percent slaves and twenty percent white. So, um, yeah, I mean, South has a large black population, that a huge market. But it actually, a lot of white people, most all white people who owned restaurants said, you know what, it's in my economic self-interest to not serve black people, even though I could get um, a lot more because I would now lose 60% of the, the white, you know, I'd lose the white population. Um, so it, it just doesn't seem like it's it's that easy. And I'm trying to think. Does the fact that there are laws behind something does that influence things? Because Jim Crow, I know that there there are laws from the government, but but still, even if those went away, I would say the social stigma would still be strong enough that they wouldn't. Um, was it because they were able to use violence to prevent people? Like, wh- what am I what am I missing from your perspective? So part of it is that weakness that I pointed out to begin with that it's all about incentive models. And so if there is somebody with a very strong ideology that we would say is immoral or that's unbiblical, let's say it's racist, they could still pursue that. And even if they lost money because of it, they might choose to do so anyway, because they believe in it so strongly. And, you know, there's nothing stopping them from doing so. And so that would be a big negative. Um, You also have the issue, the example that you gave, the market size in the sense of people may have been much bigger with the black population than the white population. However, the value of those two markets are probably not proportionate with the number of people. And so there's probably a lot more value. There's a lot bigger market with the white population than when with the black, even though there are a lot less people themselves. And so that's, again, the weakness of a free market system is that it is all about value and profits, and it's all economic incentive models. And those are not perfect. Those are not moral. They're amoral. They're not immoral. They're just amoral. And so the other place... So number one, I would just say that it's still possible. And that's not an impossible thing. And there are probably going to be some aspects of people getting discriminated against for various reasons. That's going to happen. I would argue that in just about every state that I can think of, at least, that happens as well. And it happens very legally. And it happens through the force of the government, not through voluntary actions of individuals. And so I would say that that would be worse, in my opinion, 
that you are using force and coercion and a centralized group of people that is stealing from its citizens in order to enforce discrimination and racism, I would say that that's very wrong. You could look at something like uh, the fact that Hitler gave an award to Margaret Sanger, who started Planned Parenthood because of her eugenics ideas and that he got all of his eugenics, eugenics ideas from America, that we had these sterilization laws and we had all these eugenics uh, groups that met up and eugenic societies and all of these things. And he got the basis for a lot of his ideas for how to implement eugenics in Nazi Germany from America. And, you know, we might think that America is, you know, this great and mighty country that's all about the individual rights. And the reality is when you look at history, you know, slavery would be a very good example, but even, you know, the eugenics agenda of going back to the early 1900s and, you know, it happens over and over again. It's these cycles that do happen, different groups getting discriminated against, but having a state doesn't stop that. And historically, we can show that having a state not only doesn't stop that, the state is typically used as soon as there is a majority of citizens that believe a certain discriminatory ideology, the state then enforces it. Whereas in a free market-based society, even if the majority of customers of individuals are racist, for example, the system as a whole doesn't become racist and force racist ideology and laws on the people. It's, it's a market-based system. It's still voluntary. Whereas, you know, if the majority of Americans tomorrow turned out that they were extremely racist, you know, they could just vote in totally racist politicians and racist laws, and that would become law and the government would enforce it, period. And yeah. so yeah, that, that, that doesn't help. That's the second thing. So the first thing I love that you you've done is you always come back to you know it's about the kingdom, not just not anarchism or or whatnot. But you know the second thing that I I appreciate that you're doing is I think sometimes people get they become um, you know ideologues or wh- whatever you call them, and they it's like well this is the fix like this is what and so I, I appreciate the honesty of well no I mean no system's going to fix it human hearts are are twisted. Um, there are cycles and I mean, there are cycles in my own life of, of sin and repentance and, um, and, and all that. So, so yeah, no, it, it's helpful to, to kind of lower expectations here and say, yeah, it's, it's when, when you talk about seeking the ideal, I think sometimes people might criticize you. Like in my consequentialism season, people are critical of not being a consequentialist because they say, well, that's just pharisaical. You have these expectations that are here, and that's what the Pharisees did. You know, you can't do this, and you have to do this. And so, but but really, you know, one of the things I've discovered is that it it's actually freeing in a lot of ways. And I think what you're what you're saying here is that, yeah, I mean, things things are going to be messed up, but like we we journey towards the ideal. We seek it. It's not going to be perfect all the time, but um, we want to value other image bearers. And we want to love and serve God how he asked us to do it. And um, that's just refreshing. Yeah. Yeah. And I would, uh, you ready to insert something a little random, but that does fit? Sure. Yeah. Okay. So um, talking about like the practical aspects and we've mentioned cycles multiple times and stuff. If you look at how civilizations and how history goes through these cycles, the 
we are currently in some sort of transition period into another cycle, whether that be looking at the American empire, where empires rise, they get bigger, they dominate, you know, a foreign territory, they build out a bureaucracy, it gets corrupted, and, you know, the next step is it crashes down. And so the, the pattern of empires is one where if you apply it to the American empire, we are at the tail end somewhere. Um, if you look at the patterns of history as a whole, you have civilization, civilization cycling through these patterns of being more materialistic or sensate, and that switching over to being more religious or spiritual or you know mystical or whatever. And we are heading from the materialistic point of view into a more uh, mystical point of view. And that doesn't necessarily have to be Christian, although throughout history, that has been a more common way that that is expressed. You can look at the fourth turning cycles, if you've ever heard of that. Um, the fourth turning was a book where they talk about how generations go through cycles. And within, I think it was roughly a, maybe it was a either 50 or 80 year period. I can't remember exactly. Um, but within that period, there's four cycles that a society generally goes through. And America is where it's typically applied. But you would have this first cycle where things are going good. It's the high point. And then you have a second cycle where, you know, there are some changes. There's a great awakening of some kind of spiritual revivals. You have another one where there's an unraveling, where there's culture wars and different things like this. And then the final cycle is a crisis period. And that would be something like the Civil War or the Two World Wars or our current time period. <laughs> so um, in all these different views of historical cycles and patterns, we are shifting into something new and our old system in some way is coming to an end. And my view on that is that if we as Christians are focused on the kingdom of God and we are building this out in our lives, we are building community, we are helping others ourselves, we are not relying on the state, nor are we relying on immoral mega corporations we are relying on each other and building out the kingdom of God and helping others. If we are actually doing this, then if there is some sort of major negative thing that happens in society, let's say the American empire crashes or the dollar crashes, you have runaway inflation or, you know, who knows what could happen. You have the, you know, what people fear the world government is going to come into being or, you know, some big technocracy or tracked and traced and it's 1984 or Brave New World, or whatever example you want to go for, if it's any of these, if we're transitioning into anything that you know doesn't look very pretty from our perspective, then to have these systems built out ahead of time, and for us to be actively building out the kingdom of God and living that out, and having others around us that are doing the same, if we do this, then we are prepared for something like that to a much greater extent than if we're just you know blindsided. If we are totally relying on the state and Walmart up the road and those things aren't there for us anymore or are not looking out for our best interests. You, know, you could argue they're doing it now and let's say they are, but in the future they may not be. Then we want to make sure that we are prepared for something like that. You look at like the fall of the Roman empire and it was the monasteries and the monks that preserved a lot of the knowledge. They were the ones that were mostly self-sufficient, growing their own food and doing their own thing. And they became trade centers after Rome fell. And they were partially responsible for getting civilization up and running again, you know, to a large degree after the fall of the Roman Empire. And 
that's an example of the kingdom of God. And they were actually living that out. And that went really well for that transition period. It was very important. And so there's even this aspect here where if we are moving into a more spiritual age, that spiritualism is probably not Christian in our modern time. Um, but it is spiritual. It's people, you know, that are spiritual, but I'm not religious. You know, you hear that a lot. And that's what we're shifting into. And so we need to be prepared not only for that spiritual side of things, but also the materialistic side of things that's coming crashing down. You know, the economies go in cycles. You know, it's all about cycles. And so uh, although everything's going well right now, you know, stock markets at all time highs, even though the world economy is at all time lows. And you know, it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. But you know, those things come down. You have recessions, you have depressions, you have the fall of empires, you have all this stuff. And so uh, again, going back to living out the ideals, but also looking at it from a very realistic and practical point of view, realistically, we are going to go through these cycles. And so if we want to be practical and realistic, then we want to be prepared for that, for us and our family, for the whole kingdom of God, for the church, for those in need that are not part of the church. And that's part of our role, is to always be that steadfast rock within humanity. We are the remnant, and we need to fulfill that role. And I think that living out these principles of the kingdom of God, I think that really helps with not only building the kingdom of God and following these ideals and biblical principles, but just from a very practical, realistic point of view, that things aren't always going peachy. You know, bad things happen. We have wars. We have, you know, corruption. We have all these things. And we need to make sure that in a scenario that is not going so well for society, which I think we can all say is at least a possibility, we want to make sure that we are prepared for that and we're ready for that. And we have systems in place. We have ways of taking care of one another because that's what we're called to do. And so I, I think from that very practical point of view, following this ideal of the kingdom of God is something that we should all be doing, even if only from this realistic, practical perspective. Yeah. Well, I think, um, I think that's, that's all I really have in regard to questions. Um, I, I was expecting this. I didn't have that as many questions as I have for a lot of other people. So I was expecting it to go a bit shorter, but I've, <laughs> yeah, I've other questions came up during that time and um I yeah, I really enjoyed it. So, thank you for for taking an hour and a half of your time. Yeah, thank you very much and, for having me on. And uh would you like to to plug any of your stuff? Yeah, yeah, I would. So, my podcast is Our Foundations podcast and I cover different things in different seasons. I guess kind of similar to you, I have these seasons uh Overall, it's not a religious show, but the first season is all about the evolution of the systems of our society, economic, uh, political, and the education system. And season one kind of covers the beginnings of those to modern alternative movements. Season two looks at a parallel between the Reformation and modern times. A lot of really interesting stuff there. Um, that was a really fun one. I did some interviews as well as solo episodes. And then uh, I had kind of an interim period where there's a lot on historical cycles and Corruption and Conspiracy in Modern Times and some interesting stuff if you're into that. And then uh, the current season that I recently started is all about looking at the early church 
and comparing that to some modern movements and understanding what their philosophy was, what their theology was, how they viewed the state and the culture and how they handled themselves, and really building out this idea of the kingdom of God. And so if you are interested in any of that, that would be our foundations. And I'm also on Twitter, I guess, is the only other presence I have. But yeah, yeah, I'd encourage anybody who's interested in these things to at least check it out. All right. Well, thanks again, and I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. That's all for now. So peace, and because I'm a pacifist, when I say it, I mean it. podcast is a part of the Kingdom Outpost Network. Please check out the links below to find other great podcasts and content related to nonviolence and kingdom living.